Well, Acts 9.31 is where we will be this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Have you ever been really hungry and somebody starts describing some food and your appetite just goes absolutely crazy? So maybe it's, it's been like a long week and it's a Friday afternoon and you and the spouse are going out to celebrate something that night and you're going to Texas Roadhouse and you want to make sure that you reserve about 900 calories for, you know, four to five rolls there at Texas Roadhouse. So all day long you've pretty much been starving yourself so that you could go there and really throw down. And it's about 3.30 in the afternoon, you're getting off in an hour and a half, you're telling the wife, make sure you're ready to go, I'm so hungry, I cannot wait to eat this food. And one of your coworkers comes up and he starts describing the food that he ate last night at a local steakhouse. And he's going on and on and on. And as he talks about the steak that he had the night before and the butter and the side items and the dessert, you are undone. You're like, just stop. I can't take it. My appetite's going crazy. Even now, as I just mentioned steak, some of you are hungry. And you're starting to ponder, maybe I'll have a very heavy lunch today when all this is over. Some of you are undone just by this talk of food. Well, Luke kind of does this to us spiritually with his description of the church in Acts 9.31. He gives us a status check on the church, and as he does it, he speaks in a way that should cause your spiritual appetite to just flare up. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you long to see our church fortified? Do you long to see the people of God stand in strength as the church militant on the earth, accomplishing her mission to make disciples, witnessing to a loveless world through her love for one another, walking in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, serving the Lord with gladness day in and day out, making good use of the time. If these are things you desire, if you're hungry for these things this morning, Luke will only make you more hungry. Do you long to see our church multiply? To reach our neighbors here in Seaford? Do you long to see us call the wayfaring strangers of Seaford home through the light of the Gospel, the most renowned sinners of our neighborhood, home through the light of the Gospel? Do you long to see the number of this church added to in the Lord's time? If these are things you desire, Luke will deepen those desires with this one verse of Scripture this morning. In this text, we have Luke checking in on the church. He likes to give us these little reports summarizing what's happening in the life of the church at that moment. So, for example, you remember at the end of Acts 2, we got one of these check-ins, one of these status checks. And we got a beautiful summary of the early church in her infancy where she was devoting herself to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. And they're devoting themselves to prayer and they're holding all things in common and they're selling off possessions and belongings and they're distributing the goods uh, to anybody as they have need they're worshiping together they're hospitable and Luke says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved it's a status update that causes you to rejoice as you read it 
Well, we get another one of these in Acts 9.31. It's the eighth one that we have seen in Acts thus far. And it comes as a bit of a concluding statement on everything that has occurred from the fallout of Stephen's martyrdom at the end of Acts 7 all the way up to this point. So Acts 9, verse 31, just one verse for us today. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the Lord's Word. Let's start with the setting that Acts 9.31 is taking place in. Luke says throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church has peace. Up to this point in Acts, Luke has used the word church to refer to Christians who are gathering in local congregations, but here he actually uses the word a bit differently because he's talking about the entirety of the Christian community in the Jewish region. All those who were dispersed in the heated persecution that followed Stephen's death in Jerusalem, the persecution that was led by Saul. He is speaking about the universal church. The Catholic Church. Now, I know when I say that, a lot of you are like, wait a second. (laughs) What's going on here? And so when I say Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. Here's Jonathan Lehman on this. He says, most people associate the word Catholic with the Roman Catholic Church. Yet, when used with a little c, the word simply means worldwide or universal. This is why Protestants use the Nicene Creed to affirm their belief in the one holy Catholic apostolic church. It's really a theological way for us to understand the church. Luke is recognizing that in the common kingdom of man, there have been some who have been gathered out of the world into the spiritual redemptive kingdom of Christ. And this group that has been gathered out of the world expresses herself in local congregations, like this one, Seaford Baptist. We just prayed for Nansman River Baptist over in Suffolk. But we're one church. We're one Catholic church, one universal church, one spiritual body. And here in Acts 9.31, that one spiritual body is spread out over Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And notice that the church in this region is at peace. And this peace is physical, and this peace is spiritual. It's spiritual in the sense that any time anybody in the kingdom of God is experiencing peace that's from the Lord, right? So there's never a time in our lives we experience any level of peace. We're like, well, this isn't from God. This is peace that I've conjured up on my own. He's not involved in this, right? We know any peace we experience as Christians, we should be grateful to God for. But this is a very physical peace that Luke is really talking about. God's people in the church are experiencing a time of reprieve, a time of physical peace. In Acts 7, Stephen, if you'll remember, he's arrested by this ruling council and then he just walks them down their sordid history of rejecting and abusing and killing the prophets of of, of God all the way up to the Messiah, all the way up to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And he called them stiff-necked and he said, your hearts are uncircumcised. And if you'll remember, that causes them to put their fingers in their ears and to run at him and to lay their hands on him and to take him outside of the city and they stone our brother Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. 
And the men who kill him, who murder him, they lay their coats so they could throw the stones easier, these big heavy stones, they lay their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And after this happens, there is a persecution that rises up like a tidal wave and crashes down on the church in Jerusalem, and then that scatters the church into the surrounding regions. Acts 8.1 says, speaking of Stephen's death, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, uh, and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, Satan must have thought this was grand. I'm chasing these people out of Jerusalem. I'm scattering them. They're not going to be consolidated. They're not going to be together now. They'll be split up. It'll be a disaster for them. But of course, what Satan did not understand is that this was all according to the Lord's plan. He had commissioned them. He had told them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so as they are persecuted and scattered from Jerusalem, where do they go? to Judea and to Samaria. So the gospel is just moving uh, out beyond Jerusalem in the way that Jesus said it would. The persecution meant for the destruction of the church is being used by God for His own glorious purpose. But this intense persecution carried on in large part due to the efforts of Saul. Acts 8.3 But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. For the rest of Acts 8, we get a description of what's going on with Philip the Evangelist, but when we come back around in Acts 9, we hear uh, Luke say, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. But of course, in Acts 9, we see that Saul is converted on his way to Damascus. It's a miracle. This terrorist is converted. And about a three-year period of time passes, and things have settled down. The church... Is about six years or so from Pentecost at this point. She's about six years old. She's still a very young church. But after a time of being hunted, she's able to take a breath. And isn't God good to do this? Isn't God good to deliver His people from the unrelenting pressures of persecution? When Satan is hunting the people of God in Revelation 12, seeking to destroy her in the wilderness of the world, what happens? It says, and when the dragon, that Satan, saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is the people of God, who had given birth to the male child. That's Jesus. Jesus came out of the line of the people of God. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And so the people of God are given the wings of the great eagle so she might fly from the dragon, fly from the serpent, meaning God provides relief and rescue and nourishment for His people even in the midst of suffering and persecution. It's a reminder to us that Satan's authority is limited, that the deceiver will not prevail against the Lord's church. He will bark and he will bite and he will send seething sinners with swords to try to cut our heads off. He will inspire all sorts of irate indignation against the Lord's bride. But at the end of the day, the dragon will not win. And even along the way, God is good to provide a reprieve for His church. Good to give her times of peace, even before the dragon's ultimate destruction. The question for the church in this region is what are they going to do with their time of peace? 
Do they rest on their accomplishments thus far? Take a break for a little while? Who could blame them? It's been six long, hard years. They've gotten out of Jerusalem. They break in, uh, they've broken beyond the boundaries of Judea. They've even gone up and uh, established a Christian witness in Samaria, the place where Jewish people before would never want to go. I mean, hey, take a year off. Take a sabbatical. Did they disperse and say, well, that was an insane few years. I don't think we want to go through that again. So how about you guys go back to fishing and we'll go back to the marketplace and start selling pots again and, and you know, just, just return to whatever you were doing before. We, we don't need to put ourselves through this. Did they use their time of peace for selfish purposes? Of course, the answer to these questions is no, no, and no. They did not use their time of peace for any of that. Luke says they use it to do two things. This time of reprieve, they use it to be, one, fortified in the fear of the Lord. They are fortified in the fear of the Lord. And number two, they are multiplying in the encouragement or the comfort of the Spirit. And these two teaching points is what we'll give the rest of our time to this morning. First of all, we see how the church uses this time of peace to be edified, which means they're being built up. He's speaking of the church as a building. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where we see this. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that in the church, the blood of Christ has brought Jewish people who are believers and Gentile people, non-Jewish people who are believers, together into fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters. It used to be that they were hostile toward one another, wanted nothing to do with one another. But now Jew and Gentile have been brought in. They have become uh, The two men have become one man. The wall of hostility is torn down. And now we got one man in place of the two. Ephesians 2.17 says, And he came and preached peace, to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So the Gentiles who were far off, they have peace through the Gospel that's been preached to them. The Jews who were near, because they had the prophets and the law and the temple, they have peace through the Gospel that's been preached to them. They are now not two men, but they are one man, both having access in one Spirit to the Father. But listen to what Paul says next. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So here again we see this idea of the church being built up, the church as a building, the church being edified. The church here is being spoken of as a family home for the citizens of the redemptive kingdom. And that home is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, meaning all the other stones are set with Him as the reference point. He's the one that determines the structure of the building. And He is the one that holds it all together. And He is the one that grows it into a holy temple unto the Lord. The Apostle Peter also speaks to the church as a building in his first letter. He says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Stones are usually lifeless, mute, 
objects, right? Rock hard. But Jesus is not lifeless. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life of men. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the Lamb who is slain but standing. Therefore, He is a cornerstone who is a living stone. And those who have had His life imparted to them by saving grace are also now living stones. And He is building us up into a spiritual house. The apostles as the foundation with Himself as the cornerstone. So that we would be a priesthood offering our lives up to God as a living sacrifice. And six years into the New Testament church, they are serious about this business. Individually, they are edified. They're being built up. They're being fortified. As individuals, they are experiencing what Paul prays for in Ephesians 3 when he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That is what is being experienced by the individuals. They're being strengthened with power through His Spirit in their inner being. They're being built up. And that is overflowing into the community. As a people, they're being built up. I think we could say we all want this for our church. We all want our church to be fortified. We, we all want down to a person the members of Seaford Baptist to be strengthened in their inner man, in their inner woman. We want that. And then we want that to overflow into the community that we are a congregation who's being edified, being fortified in Christ. We want it, so how has it come about? Well, it's not in a vacuum. Here is Eckhard Schnabel on this, one of my favorite names. Eckhard says, the way of life of the followers of Jesus in which they make progress is the fear of the Lord. Remember when they were called the way? The way of life in which they make progress is the fear of the Lord. These are brothers and sisters walking in the fear of the Lord. That's why they're fortified. That's why they're built up. That's why they're edified. It's because they advance and progress in the fear of the Lord. So number one this morning, the church that walks in the fear of the Lord will be fortified. The church that walks in the fear of the Lord will be fortified. And if that's true, the next question we need to ask is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, the answer to that question begins with God Himself. Not only because He's the one we fear, but because God has chosen to be known by the name fear. Genesis 31 says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labors of my hands and rebuked you last night. Why is God called the fear of Isaac? When's the last time you came before God praying and you said, oh, my fear, I come to you? Right? Probably not often. So why is God called the fear of Isaac? Here's John Bunyan on this matter. He says, and indeed, God may well be called the fear of His people, not only because they have by His grace made Him the object of their fear, but because of the dread and terrible majesty that is in Him. 
In other words, God has taken the word fear as His own name to let us know just how majestic and just how awesome He is as the Lord and the Judge of all the earth and the Lord and Judge of everyone who lives on it. When you understand that, that He is in that position and He alone is in that position, it compels you to set Him apart as holy Isaiah 8.13 says, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. When we heed God's revelation of Himself, when we rightly understand Him as the sovereign ruler of the universe, as He's revealed Himself to be, as the maker of all things, who is excellent in all His judgments, we should be brought to a place of fear. But when we fear God, we don't fear Him as pure threat. That's the way that a slave would fear a cruel master, as pure threat. No, we don't fear God in that way. We fear God with a childlike reverence, the way a son trembles before a good father. In fact, that sort of fear is a new covenant promise made to the people of God. Jeremiah 32, verse 38, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. For their own good and for the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So this is a part of God's glorious purpose in His salvation of your soul. Think of all the reasons God wanted to save you. One of them is that He wanted you to fear Him. It's good for you to fear Him. It causes you to not turn from Him when you fear Him. He made you to fear Him. Wants you to fear Him. Wants you to tremble before Him as a son before a good father. And I I think we have to think about this rightly Because realistically, it is easy for us to think of reverence purely in terms of God's got every right to crush me because I'm a sinner. So He just deals with me. right? I'm a sinner. I live on His grace. And so every day I wake up and He goes, there He is. Oh, I'd crush Him if I could, but I chose to be gracious. you know. We can't revere God in that way. Because it will warp your understanding of His character in your mind. I didn't grow up, I, I was blessed with, a, with a, a good earthly father. Not everybody in this room can say that. Some of you were, were blessed with a pretty tough dad. In pretty tough circumstances and situations. But I, I grew up in a two-parent home with a dad who just knocked it out of the park. God in His good pleasure and favor just gave that to me. And I'm thankful for it. But I didn't grow up fearing Mike Howard, my dad, Mike Howard Sr., because I knew he could discipline me. I, I didn't walk around going, well, there's dad. Let me tiptoe around him. The only reason that he puts up with me is because I have his last name. He'd kick me out if he could. He'd kick me out if mom wouldn't stop him. Right? No. I revered him. I have a childlike fear of him that persists to this day. But that fear which drove me to want to please him with my obedience had to do not with him being a pure threat, but with his character. He was a good father to me. Because he was good, I didn't want to displease him. 
Because he was good, I didn't want to disappoint him. Because he was good, I didn't want to disobey him. Therefore, I expressed my reverence for my father in what? In loving obedience. And so for us, if we fear God, not because we are a second away from him crushing us, we fear God because he didn't crush us. We fear God because he crushed Jesus instead of us. Because He's that good. And again, this is the promise of the new covenant. I will cleanse them. This is Jeremiah 33. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against Me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against Me. And this city shall be to Me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And then listen, they shall... Fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. He is a good God. He is a promise-keeping God. He blesses us in Jesus Christ. He prospers us in Jesus Christ. He builds us up in Jesus Christ. He cares for our needs. He provides all that is necessary for what He has called us to do for Jesus. And these are the things that we fear Him for. Now, yes, it's true that if you persistently sin against His holy name, then He will discipline you as a father. No doubt. But understand that even that action is just rooted in His goodness and in His love for you. It's not rooted in any of the evil things that wrongful discipline by earthly fathers is rooted in. No, it's love. He knows these these sinful things you keep clinging to, they're bad for your life, they're bad for your soul, and so He's going to separate you from them as a loving father does. But we must respond to our gracious Father with fear and with trembling. This childlike reverence is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Foolish people are going to do what they want, no matter what you tell them. You could slap them around, you could threaten them, right? You, you could do everything you want. Foolish people are going to do what they want to do no matter what you say. Wise people, on the other hand, revere the fear of Isaac in all of his beautiful purity and all of his goodness. And in light of that, they surrender themselves to his will, saying he is good and out of fear for him, out of reverence for him, I will rejoice and I will tremble before him, aiming to please him in everything that I do. You say, well, that all sounds great. Well, if that all sounds great, what keeps us from it? What keeps you and I from this? And what keeps our church from this? Allow me to suggest uh, a few reasons as to why edification is stunted. Why Christians and groups of Christians cease to be built up. Maybe there's an issue with the hardness of heart. And that is why you're not being built up. Maybe you're not being built up because you're prayerless. Or you're coveting. Maybe you have a doubting heart or an unbelieving heart or a forgetful heart. Maybe you're a complainer and a grumbler. Maybe you're proud and you're rebellious. All of these would be reasons as to why edification would cease to advance. Why the building would stop. Well, oddly enough, if you were to read John Bunyan's treatise on the fear of God, these are the things that he says impedes a heart from fearing the Lord. It's a heart that is hard. 
A heart that is prayerless, a heart that is covetous, a heart that is unbelieving, that's forgetful, that's complaining, that's proud. And the reason that we could say that these are things that impede the fear of the Lord just as naturally as we could say that these are things that impede edification is that they go hand in hand. When people are not hard in their hearts, they are soft-hearted toward God and they are prayerful. They're not coveting, but they're satisfied in the Lord. They're not doubtful, but they have faith in the Lord. They're not forgetting, but they're remembering the Lord. They're not complaining, but they're grateful toward the Lord. They're not proud or rebellious, but they are submissive toward the Lord. When someone's in that place, we would say they are in a place where they are fearing the Lord. And if they're in a place where they're fearing the Lord, then they are in a place to be built up in the Lord. They go hand in hand. Let's keep going. Second point, because you see the church is not just using the peace afforded to them as a time to be built up, it's also a time in which they increase in their number. Luke says they're multiplied. And that's a good thing. Churches want this. We want this. We want to multiply. We want to see the people of Seaford come to Christ to enter into the household of God where they will be discipled. And they will grow up into the stature of Christ. Well, they will fear, uh, they will fear the Lord just as we've been talking about. Well, they will, they will go out and they will be fishers of men and disciple others. Numbers are not always a sign of health. They could be, but not always. But at the end of the day, whatever the baptism statistics say and whatever the denominational reports may say, we are in this for conversions to the glory of God. We want to see souls go from death to life and then start doing the work to see other souls go from death to life. But just as the edification of the church doesn't happen in a vacuum, the multiplication of the church does not come about in a vacuum. Luke tells us it happens through the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so our second teaching point this morning, the church that walks in the comfort of the Spirit will be multiplied. The church that walks in the comfort of the Spirit will be multiplied. When Luke says the comfort of the Spirit, it could be just as easily translated as encouragement. The Greek word used is a form of the same word that Jesus uses to speak of the promise of the Spirit to come in John 14 and John 16. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. If you ever wonder, how did the apostles remember all the stuff that Jesus said so that they could write it down in the Scriptures? Well, this is part of your answer right here. John fourteen twenty six. The Father sends the Spirit in His name, uh, in the name of Christ, and the Spirit comes and teaches them all things and brings to remembrance everything that Jesus said to them. He is the helper, He is the comforter, He is the encourager. This is what He does. But we find out more in John 16, verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Uh, Concerning righteousness, because... I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus had to go away from his disciples. He had to. So that he could die for his disciples. And satisfy the wrath of the Father. So he could rise again. So he could ascend to the right hand of the Father. If these things don't happen, if the saving, redeeming, justifying work of Jesus Christ doesn't take place, the disciples will have no spiritual cleansing. All the promises of the Old Testament will be left unfulfilled. The new covenant does not come. And if none of these things happen, then the Spirit of God does not come. And His dwelling in believers is part of the new covenant promise. This would be devastating because it is through the Spirit of the Lord that the disciples bear witness to the Gospel. It's the Spirit who will guide them into all truth after Jesus' departure. Without the Spirit, the disciples would be left alone in the world without their Savior. They would be left without the comfort and the encouragement that only the Spirit of God can bring. And so what is that specifically? What is the comfort and what is the encouragement of the Spirit? And why does it spur the church on toward multiplication? Well, consider this from John Owen. John Owen said, the foundation of all our communion with the Holy Ghost consists in His mission or sending to be our comforter by Jesus Christ. Meaning, you can't understand your relationship with the Holy Spirit apart from His purpose to be your comforter. If you try to understand the Spirit's purpose in your life, apart from His mission to be an encourager and a comforter to you, He's not going to make sense. His mission won't make sense. This is what He does. This is the main purpose that He has in your life. To comfort you and to encourage you. How does He do it? Well, first of all, the Spirit gives us the comfort of sonship. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Charles Spurgeon said a thousand sources of joy are opened in that one blessing of adoption. This one truth that we are the sons of God, that we are set up to receive His inheritance, to be co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted in. It's amazing. It's the Spirit who, who Paul calls the Spirit of adoption that compels you to call God your Father. Romans 8, 15, and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you ever sinned and you're like, I'm never going to pray again? You ever, seriously, have you ever felt that way? You sin and you're like, I'm just going to stop talking to God. He's got to be done with me. I've come to Him about this too many times. So I'll just, I won't talk to Him anymore. I'm, I'm out. I'll, just, I'll, I'll cut myself off from Him. I'll just go lose my own salvation. I deserve it. You ever been there? You're just in this total despair over your sin? Why did you pray again? Because the Spirit of God in your heart said, no, 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 no. He is your Father Go to Him. He wants to hear from you again on this. 
bring it to him again. Confess it to him again. He's your father. He knows you. He loves you. Don't walk away. He is your father. You are his child. That's the comfort and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And you really want to get excited about it. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin says when you have those thoughts, those comforting, encouraging thoughts, the Spirit is acting as a secretary, actually taking the very thoughts of Jesus for you at the right hand of the Father. And like a secretary, he's bringing the thoughts of Jesus to your heart, saying, Here's what Jesus is saying right now You're a child of God. He's your father. Don't run. How good is that? He gives us the comfort of sonship. He reminds us we are sons of God when we are prone to forget. Secondly, the Spirit gives us hope. Hope is the virtue that enables you to believe the Gospel for yourself and for others. That God will keep His promises to His people. That's what hope is. And the Spirit gives us hope. Romans 15.13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So the God of hope fills you up with joy and peace as you believe. So, Lord, I believe in You. He fills you up with joy and peace, so that by the power of the Spirit, you then begin to just overflow in hope. That the more you believe, the more you get joy and peace, the more you get joy and peace, the more hopeful you are that the Gospel is actually true and you hold on and you hold out for it and you are abounding in hope. Wonderful news because the enemy is an enemy of despair. The Spirit drives despair away and drives the despair that Satan loves to bring into your life away with his comforting hope, his comforting encouragement. Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The hope that the Spirit brings enables us to wait with patience. And thirdly, but certainly not least, the Spirit provides for us His living and abiding presence. He's with us all the time. Even when we are so weak, we can't even muster up a prayer. Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When Paul says likewise in Romans 8.26, he means the Spirit will strengthen you and sustain you the same way that hope does. He gives you hope and that hope sustains you. But likewise, He gives you Himself. His living presence to help you with every weakness. And is this any more evident than when we come before the Lord, we don't even know what to pray, and the Spirit is there to say, I'll be your intercessor. When you don't know what to pray, I'll be your intercessor. I will intercede for you with groanings too deep for words. I mentioned Thomas Goodwin a moment ago. He rightly pointed out that this means we have an intercessor in heaven in Christ and an intercessor in our hearts in the Spirit. We're covered. Praise God for that. That the Spirit is always our very present help our advocate and our intercessor in times of need and affliction. And so, with all that in mind, what's the connection between the multiplying taking place in the early church and this encouragement and comfort of the Spirit? 
How do they go together? Well, if we go back to Jesus' initial instructions in Acts 1.8, the Word says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then they will be witnesses. But they have to go and wait on who? The Holy Spirit. Because until they have the powerful, comforting encouragement of the Spirit, they're not able to be witnesses. And this is not just because the Spirit empowers the preaching, but because the Spirit empowers the preacher. The Spirit opens the ears of the ones being preached to. Spirit says to the Christian, you're a son in the household of God. You're a co-heir. The Christian goes, this is great news. I've got to go and tell people. Yeah, but you might suffer out there when you go and tell people. That's okay. I've got hope. I've got hope. Because I'm a co-heir. My eyes are on the crown of glory. And so the Spirit etches that hope onto the Christian heart and the Christian is invigorated by the confidence they have in God's power to keep His promises. So they go back out into the world with joy, pressing on, preaching often. Then they come to the Lord in prayer. And suddenly, any confusion or melancholy that stood in the way of sweet communion with God starts to dissipate. And the Christian, feeling strengthened by the Spirit's presence and abiding help, is ready to leave the prayer closet and do the work of witnessing and disciple-making again. Do you see how this works? The advocacy of the Spirit provides a great advantage for believers on the mission field. It compels us, spurs us to get back out there and do the work. The comfort of the Spirit brings a consolation to tattered fishermen who are weary from the work of trolling for souls. And it builds us back up. We're able to go back out there and do it again. The encouragement of the Spirit brings an energy to the downtrodden witness, jolting us back to faithfulness. The reason the early church were such great witnesses is because they were dependent on the Spirit for kingdom growth. And that's the only way for multiplication to be real. And that's the only way for it to be healthy. It must be a fruit of the comfort of the Spirit. You can see here as Luke checks in on this young church for the eighth time, she's fortified. She's built up in the fear of the Lord. She's multiplying in the comfort of the Spirit. Meaning, this is a church who is not wasting the time of peace that she has. As the band returns to lead us, my question for you is, what are we going to do with our time of peace? What are we going to do with our time of peace? And I know some of you hear me ask that, and you're like, are you crazy? Have you been watching TV? This is not a time of peace. We see the horrors of the war in Russia Russia and the Ukraine, and we see the rising costs of living in our own nation and the growing division. And of course, over the last week, we've watched the atrocities playing out, the horrible things that Hamas has done to Israel. We see Israel defending herself, and we see the whole world contemplating how they will get involved. How could you say this is a time of peace? Well, we are about 13 minutes away from walking out of this church service. And unless something changes drastically, there's nobody who has tried to tear down the door and kill us for gathering this morning. And when church ends today, if you're like, boy, I just haven't had enough. 
You could go find another church to worship at. You could get it in again. You could go home and watch a live stream where somebody else worshiped early in the day. Get another sermon in. Or maybe you're like, no, I'm ready to take the word out. You could go down to Yorktown Beach this afternoon and just spend the rest of the day handing out gospel tracts for hours and hours. You might get disrespected at some point down there. You might get name called, but you're not going to get arrested. Even in situations where Christians are getting in trouble for some open-air preaching in our country, typically they're detained and released without any formal charges. Meaning, despite what is going on in the world, despite the fact that there's drag, drag queen story hours at libraries and, and all the things that we get worked up about and that we're upset about and all the things we see happening in our culture, we live in a time where we have a great license to preach the gospel in our context. A great license. What are we going to do with our peace? Are we, are we good with a little old-time religion? Come get in your hour plus on a Sunday, head back to the world, pretty much live like the rest of your neighbors. I, I hope you hunger for more than that. I'm sure that you do. Will we use the time of peace to build the brand of Seaford Baptist Church and make our own name great? Well, I, I hope we have higher aims than that. We must be like our brothers and sisters in 39 A.D using the time of peace to walk in the fear of God, fortified as a living holy temple to the Lord, walking in the comfort of the Spirit, multiplying as an encouraged people, we can't waste the peace. And so I want to challenge you to pray for these things to be so. That is your action point as you leave. To pray for these things to be so. And to not just pray for our own church. Because the regional aspect of this text is not lost on me. Next Sunday, I, I won't be here. I still expect you to be. But I won't be here. Uh, I will be at Pocosin Baptist. And in this pulpit will be the pastor of Christ Fellowship Church in Williamsburg, Pastor Peter Hess. And he will preach next Sunday. I cannot wait for you to get to hear from one of the wisest men that I know, Pastor Peter Hess. And the reason this is happening is because all the pastors that are involved in the Pillar Church network of Baptist churches here in Hampton Roads were hopping on what we call the, the merry-go-round, the carousel, and we're going to each other's churches. And so this will happen with Carrollton Baptist and Nanceman River and Foxhill Road and Reformation Christian Fellowship and Pocosin and Christ Fellowship. And as I was studying in this text this week, I thought... How glorious would it be for people to say of our churches in the Hampton Roads region. So, the church throughout all of the Pillar Network Hampton Roads had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. What a sweet testimony that would be. What a sweet report it would be to give. But churches are made up of individuals. So are you hungry for these things? If not, then pray that God would deepen your appetite for fortification and for multiplication. If He's caused your appetite to run wild this morning, then take action. Take action. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling in your church. Share the gospel with people often. Disciple someone. And pray for the other churches in our network. Get down on your knees and pray that they would be fortified churches, multiplying churches, 
All of this, of course, for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you make us this sort of church? There are so many aspects of our own church, God, that I can look into Acts 9.31 and I can say, There's, we're experiencing that in this area and that area, but God, it's not where we want it. I think any church who would say they've arrived and they are as edified and as they, as they need to be or as they want to be, they're multiplying as much as they desire to be. Lord, they, they would need to, to go back and, and check, check the, the air in the tires. We can always use more edification. We need to be built up more. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be. I pray that we would fear you, God, that we would be a church that trembles before our good Father and that our fear of you would edify us, build us up for the work that you are calling us to. Father, I pray that the encouragement of the Holy Spirit in our lives would spur us on to fishing for men, to disciple-making work, to Great Commission work. I pray that Seaford Baptist Church, if she is anything, she would be a fortified, multiplying church. Would you grant this to us, God? Would you grant this to us? Take away our loves that compete with you. Take away, Lord, the idols that get in the way of this. Take away, Lord, the things that handcuff us and keep us from going all in on obedience before you. Sanctify your people, Lord. And where we are doing well, God, encourage us even more to carry on the work and to not despair, even if we're not seeing results right away, to keep doing the work and trusting in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.